You're listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Altham about the federal budget and federal politics. Then we had a chat with Fiona Wright, author and essayist, about her latest essay in the Griffith Review entitled Measuring Imperfection, The Limits of the Quantified Self. Then we spoke with Laura Tingle, political editor of the Australian Financial Review, and had a chat about her latest collection of essays, which is in a book out by Black Ink called In Search of Good Government. Finally, the Centre for Contemporary Photography director Naomi Cass and artist Claire Ray joined me in the studio to discuss the CCP's fundraising exhibition for the year entitled The Witching Hour. It features works donated by artists from Melbourne and Australia more broadly, and the funds raised will assist the running of the CCP itself. And you are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Amy Mullins with Uncommon Sense. And I have with me in the studio the wonderful Ben Altham. Thank you for joining us, Ben. <laughs> Good morning, Amy. <laughs> I was struggling hey. with my headphones. Yeah, I know. I think wrapped around my head like an octopus. It's kind of really funny. Here we go. <laughs> I think your hair is obstructing them. Uh, not for the first time. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's impressive hair. If you haven't seen Ben Eltham's hair, check out his Twitter account and you'll um, see the glory of Ben. It's even longer than that at the moment. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, uh, so Ben, we have had uh, the federal budget delivered last Tuesday evening. Yes, yes, last Tuesday. Was it really last Tuesday? I know, yeah. yeah. It feels yeah. like yesterday to me. Um, that's correct. Scott Morrison handed down the budget for 2017 uh, to, well, you know, to some fairly interesting reception. So uh, a pretty interesting budget, you know, in terms of where the coalition government has gone ideologically. Mm. A whole bunch of things that we never really thought a Liberal government would do, like raise taxes, tax the big banks, um, spend more on welfare, including healthcare. Uh, so, you know, in many ways an ideological U-turn, particularly from the 2014 budget, the horror budget mm. of Joe Hockey that caused them so much trouble. Well, it's been um, labelled a range of things in, in the press. Um, in overall, it's seen as particularly populist and politically expedient. So some people have termed it a, a politically successful budget. But, Ben, is there some difference between a politically successful budget and actually just a good budget? Well, I think there is obviously a difference between those two things and we have to take both of those ideas on their merit. Now, politically successful, I think it's too early to tell. You know, we've had a couple of polls out um, and one's been a little bit better for the coalition and one's been about the same. So, you know, it's probably too early to tell whether they've got the mythical budget bounce out of this. Poll-wise, it's not as important, but do you think in a relative sense, compared to all the other budgets which really seem to be completely off track in terms of what... Uh, the electorate was willing to accept, um, you know, this one seems to be more accepted and and less of a controversy. Yeah, I think that's true because politically it was closer to the centre. So it was a shift or a pivot, if you like, to the centre from the Turnbull government, you know, as opposed to the, the previous three years where the coalition has, you know, handed down some fairly traditional conservative type budgets where they've cut into health and education spending. By the way, there's still a little bit of that in this budget. Yes. Um, but the, I guess the really important thing in terms of the sort of difference is that they decided to raise taxes. So they raised the Medicare levy and they imposed 
imposed a big new tax on the banks. So that is quite different for a coalition government. And I think, you know, that that's what has got the tongues wagging and it's why commentators are pretty interested in where the, the coalition is going. Now, whether this is a good budget economically, I think is uh, very much open to question because while uh, there's certainly, we can certainly welcome some um, more realistic approaches there you know i think it's realistic for the government to finally acknowledge that we did have a revenue problem after all not just a not just a spending problem so they had to raise taxes if they wanted to get the budget back into the black but even so there's still a lot of heroic assumptions baked into the budget forecasts particularly on what the economy is going to do over the next few years it does it does forecast that the economy will get back to trend growth and that uh, things like employment will start to pick up. Now, there doesn't seem to be any sign that that will happen at the moment. So, you know, a lot of their future forecast in terms of getting to surplus is, as usual, a fairly optimistic forecast. Indeed, and they assume that wages growth will actually increase um, substantially from where it is at the moment. And we haven't really seen any reason to think that that will actually happen. The only thing that I think they're banking on is that their corporate or company tax cut will actually make a difference and that employers will pass on any benefits that they get to employees via wage growth. Yeah, a few people have pointed that out. I mean, that's a really weird one. They've, they've pointed out or they've forecast that wages growth will pick up which is obviously good for the budget and the economy. But they've also forecast that unemployment won't really pick up. So if unemployment's not falling, <coughs> why would wages be be rising? You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So um, there's a few things like that that don't make a lot of sense. And just in general terms, you know, uh, economic growth is still just chugging along. We're still stuck in second gear. So where all this employment growth is going to come from is really kind of hard to see. Indeed, it is very hard to see. Um, ben, let's go through some of the uh, the measures in this budget, the key measures. Um, so first of all, the Medicare levy, an increase in the Medicare levy of 0.5%, which will kick in in 2019, um, is somewhat controversial in the sense that uh, Labor believes the National Disability Insurance Scheme was and is fully funded and we're having an argument at the moment as to whether it is or not. And, uh, of course, the reason why the Medicare levy is being increased across the board um, by the coalition government uh, from this budget is that, well, they say that the NDIS is not fully funded and that they need to make up that shortfall and the easiest and fairest emphasis on fair way is to increase the Medicare levy so that everyone's paying for this really important, um, you know, initiative. Yeah, this is one of these arguments that sort of only people in Canberra care about. You know, I think if you want But it affects all of us, Ben, so shouldn't we all care about it? We should care that uh, essential government services are funded, but... Uh, well, I think whether the NDIS was fully funded when Labor left office and whether the government can fully fund it now is, in a way, it doesn't really matter because what matters is can the government pay for it? And really, in that respect, I think uh, both Labor and the coalition were correct. Labor was correct by saying that when they left office, the NDIS was fully funded because at that time, Labor actually left office with the deficit lower than what it is now. Okay, so, uh, but the coalition is also correct in the sense that the budget is still in deficit. So the government is well, still... Well, it's growing in deficit. Uh, the deficit is coming down, according to the budget papers. So we'll see if that happens or not. But, you know, um, 
uh, in, on the very top line figures of the government budget, you know, the government is still spending more than it gains in revenue. So in that respect, the NDIS is not fully funded, right? Well, they've chosen that being the initiative that they've suggested isn't fully funded, but then you could really open it up and say all of our policies aren't fully funded because we're in deficit. Yeah, that's right. And this gets into this idea of hypothecation, which is one of those kind of nerdy terms that the economists like to use, which is basically means that um, when we tax things in this country, we don't generally tie them to a particular spending program. So all the tax goes into one account and then the government works out how to spend it. Um, and so the idea that tying the Medicare levy to the NDIS will somehow fully fund it, it's a bit of a fudge, isn't it? Because ultimately... In the end, the government has to pay for things out of all of the revenue that it gains. And the Medicare levy doesn't pay for all of Medicare and neither will it pay for all of the NDIS. Yep. So what's the the result of that then, Ben, that perhaps we shouldn't be tying our tax measures to individual policy uh, areas that really that undermines their security and their um, future consistency? Well, I just think it's a bit of a fudge, isn't it? It's a bit like the good debt, bad debt discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago with Scott Morrison's sort of terminology here. I mean, uh, yes, you can say there's a levy for a particular program and then that program is fully funded by that particular levy, but the reality is it's not, okay, because the government is spending all sorts of things on all sorts of things and it's raising all sorts of revenues for all sorts of things as well. So, for example, the big bank tax that the government's announced, that's just going into consolidated revenue. You know, company tax, that goes into consolidated revenue and from that, the government then pays out things. So, yeah, I think the hypothecation thing, while it's politically popular, because everyone can agree that, yeah, you know, we should obviously be able to pay for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. But uh, claiming that it's fully funded, I think, is a bit, it's one of those kind of political niceties, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense in the budget. Yes, so perhaps we need to get back to the point of a budget, which is to say, here are the things we think are important to fund, and overall we need to raise some revenue to make sure we can pay for all of them. Yeah, and that's why I actually support an increase to the Medicare levy because it's a broad-based income tax that will support government services. Now, Labor has a good argument which says that the Medicare levy, because it's a flat tax, will tax people on low incomes more. And that's a fact. The Medicare levy is regressive. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so Labor's proposal to phase in the Medicare levy at higher income brackets, I think, has a bit of merit, you know. Um, and we should also remember that at the same time that the government's raising the Medicare levy, they're obviously cutting company tax. That was a big part of the budget. Um, and they're also g getting rid of the deficit levy, which was only for high income earners. So at the same time, they're taking tax off at the top end, they're putting further tax on at the bottom end. And actually, if you look at some of the budget figures, it's quite unequitable or it's, it's quite, quite a harsh budget on low to middle income earners, particularly if you're a university graduate. So the government's changes to higher education arrangements mean that people will start paying their hex fees for university back much sooner and um, when they're paying a much lower income. So if you're, say, I don't know, like a 30-year-old single woman graduate on a middle income, let's say $45,000, you get a big tax increase from this budget. Uh, whereas um, if you're on uh, a very high income, you actually get a tax cut.
Yes, because they're, they're removing the deficit levy. Because they're removing the deficit levy, that's right. Indeed. And in terms of the tertiary education changes, Ben, they have been one of the more controversial and disliked elements of this budget. And uh, we saw a, a conversation on uh, Q&A last night, a back and forth between a range of tertiary education students, university students, who were saying, well, actually, why are you focusing these cuts on us? Because you're giving these company tax cuts there are other things that um, are being given out, but you're taking away from us. Why is it focused on young people? And the the response is that, well, you know, we can't do everything. And so the government has chosen to, you know, do this because we need to make it sustainable. Now, Ben, I mean, budgets are all about priorities and the most common argument about, oh, we can't do everything. And so I'm sorry, you know, you guys are going to lose seems to be a pretty sad excuse, isn't it? Yeah, it's not much of an argument really and this is a government that's been in power now for four years so they've had plenty of chances to adjust their priorities. Let's face it, higher education's always been a target under this government in 2014. They announced some devastating cuts which in the end didn't get through the Senate and I wonder if these will either. Uh, but um, the, the government's always been seeking to save money from higher education. You know, these cuts are not as bad as the 2014 cuts, but they're still bad and they're still going to affect particularly the smaller and regional universities pretty severely. Uh, I think people are only starting to work out what the various details in the announcement mean. There's some pretty serious cuts baked in there. Things like the 7.5% cut in terms of university graduation. So the government's now going to tie 7.5% percent of university funding to whether people graduate from their various courses or not and that's going to really affect uh, the universities that enrol particularly lower socioeconomic students and students from the regions because they just don't do as well they don't graduate with as higher rates of completion as the top universities in the so-called group of eight mm. so that's potentially a big cut that will hurt the regional unis the uh, vice chancellors actually came out and said that figure of non completion is actually quite complex because actually non-completion also means that if you say started your degree at one university and then increased your grades and got into a, a better university that you had initially preferred, then that's still counted as a non-completion at the first university. Yeah, how they're going to work this out I think is a big problem because the devil will be in the detail. And what about people who leave university for a few years and come back? I mean, Indeed. is that such a bad outcome for our society? I'd argue not. They're probably more committed or able and maybe it was for a medical reason that they needed to do yeah, so. Or maybe they had a kid, you yeah. know, maybe they got a job. Yes, you know, they had to get a job. <laughs> yeah, people leave university for all sorts of reasons. Some of them are entirely appropriate in their life. For example, mm. they got a really great job. They left university before they graduated. Maybe they'll go back and finish later on. Yeah. You know, is that so bad? Um, so, yeah, I think there's some real issues to iron out there. Um, and then, of course, there's the fee increases. So these will just hit students hard. And then there's the hex repayment thresholds, which are being pushed well down below the median wage. So, yeah, all sorts of pain there for former and current university students. Indeed. And then um, just let's look at, at one of the other areas that are affecting younger people in this budget. Uh, housing affordability is a huge topic we um, cover every week. And uh, Scott Morrison suggested that this budget would do something significant on housing 
housing affordability. Now, most people would suggest it's not at all significant. And in fact, it's actually potentially somewhat detrimental in the long run in terms of increasing house prices. But what is this saving measure that they've, um, you know, included into superannuation for young people? Oh, yes. Well, this is, I think, a bit of a damp squib. And I think the government's response to housing affordability in general has been a fail, just a big fat fail there. Um, the government has the government has two big levers available to it when it comes to housing affordability, as we've talked about on the show. It has negative gearing and it has the capital gains tax discount. If it got rid of those two things, it could make a big difference to the speculative bubble that is inflating house prices in this country. Now, the third thing it could do would be to build more houses. It didn't do either of those three things, okay? It didn't build more houses. The government's not really getting into building houses in a big way. There's a little bit of money for homelessness there and that's, you know, welcome, but it's not nearly enough. Um, and there's nothing on negative gearing and there's nothing on the CGT discount. Instead, the government's created this new kind of superannuation salary sacrifice savings scheme. So you'll be able to save for your first home at a discounted tax rate, basically the same way that your super is taxed less than your income unless you're a very low income earner, by the way. Mm. Um, and it's a bit like a salary sacrifice. So it's basically pre-tax savings that you get, but it's only up to $30,000. Yeah, it's a cap. Yeah, it's yep. capped at $30,000, which, as we know, is not very big. No, well, not when <laughs> it comes to a housing deposit. Like, <clears throat> what what sort of house will a $30,000 deposit get you? Um, not you a know, whole lot. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a shack in a regional town or yeah. something. Um, it's certainly not going to enable you to put a deposit down on a house in a capital city. No. So, you know, I'd have to say that measure, it probably will have no impact. If it has any impact at all, if it does actually work as the government wants it to do, then it will give first-home buyers more buying power, which will in turn bid up house prices. Exactly. So I think it's a double fail, basically, that one. Couldn't agree more, Ben. Um, the only uh, little movement we've seen in the last couple of months, which uh, was, came out yesterday from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, is that uh, that housing loans or house loans to investors has slightly, minutely declined by 1.25% in the last couple of months, which uh, suggests that perhaps these that those small tweaks that the coalition made in terms of lending to investors has had some small impact, but clearly that's not enough. Yeah, those were those tweaks announced by the Prudential Regulatory Authority, APRA, and they've been trying to crack down on bank lending to investors. Um, and look, I think that's welcome. As we've talked about, there's a distortion in the Australian property market where investors get all these tax breaks um, and, you know, the people who are really left out in the cold, of course, are renters. Uh, so there's there's really some massive problems that we've baked into Australian society over the course of 30 or 40 years. Um, I had a salon in the city, a um, bit of a plug here, <laughs> on Sunday night with Judy Yates, who's a sort of, I guess, well-known Australian housing economist, a housing policy expert. And she pointed out that this has been going on for a very long time. So, you know, these problems have been created over the course of a generation and it's going to take a, a long time to, to unwind them. And, and she thinks there won't be a housing crash because we just haven't built enough houses. So she thinks there's a housing supply problem. So there's unlikely to be any any rapid correction in house prices. And 
that might be good from an economic viewpoint because we won't have a, a devastating bubble crash like in, in America, but it's pretty depressing for those of us who want to have a more sane housing policy. In Absolutely. And um, and Laura Tingle, who we'll be speaking with at 10.30, um, has written in her recent essay about the fact that uh, the Turnbull government perhaps wrongly ruled out any changes on negative gearing or capital gains and that, you know, Labor had opened this up for them in their discussions around the issue so that they could even make slight changes at least to capital gains, which would make a significant difference. It wouldn't make the biggest difference, but at least if you move towards something, there's more to build on in the future. Do you think that, you know, the government has closed themselves off too much in this this policy area? I do. I think the government uh, has not been prepared to take the opportunity that Labor gave them for bipartisanship on on those two measures, negative gearing and CGT. And Labor's measures were pretty mild and they were very targeted. Um, they were grandfathered in that in that sense, in the sense that people who are already doing negative gearing weren't going to be kicked off it. So it's only going to be for new negative geared properties. And the CGT discount that Labor had announced it was, going to, it was going to wind back that one. And I think that was just good policy. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the capital gains tax. It's a tax on the increase in the capital of your investment. Now, why shouldn't we tax that? You know, that's, I mean, that's, I think it's well past time for a discussion on capital gains tax in this country. You know, if you go out there and work in the workplace and earn 50 grand a year, you're taxed on the income from your labour. But if your house just happens to shoot up in value and you sell it, you're not taxed on that if it's your family home. Now, why is that? Is that fair? You know, increasingly, it's it's terribly unfair for the younger generation. Yes, and we're, I mean, this budget is all about fairness, as we have heard multiple, multiple times from coalition ministers um, since this budget has been released. I just wanted to highlight something um, that's come out today. Ken Henry, who's a former head of Treasury, he, he's come out and he's actually now the chairman, as we know, of National Australia Bank. So, of course, he's, he won't be very happy with this tax on banks. Um, but he has really been quite damning, not only on the banking tax, but actually on the fiscal strategy, so to speak, of this budget. And uh, and from his, I guess, secretarial speak in uh, the, uh, the article in the Financial Review this morning, he really does point out some good points in terms of the fiscal strategy of getting the budget to return to surplus. And uh, he, he says that it's Python-esque in the sense that, you know, we're suggesting that, oh, yes, um, we'll get to surplus. And then you say, uh, just before you're supposed to get to surplus, uh, but we won't, but we'll get there in another hour or in another day. You know, it's he says it's really laughable and, you know, actually not true. Well, I mean, in that sense, he's right, isn't it? The surplus never comes. You know, it's always three, four years away and yet it never really arrives. Exactly. It's a bit like Godot, isn't it? (laughs) Samuel Beckett's play. (laughs) Yes. Um, But look, you know, I have a few issues with Ken Henry, I have to say. I mean, here's a guy who played an important role in public policy as the Secretary of the Treasury and then on leaving the public service, went and took pretty much the cushiest job imaginable. Mm, the top job. The top job, chairman of a too-big-to-fail bank. So, you know, I have a few issues of Ken Henry intervening in public policy. If Ken Henry wants to intervene in public policy, my suggestion for him is to resign his chairmanship of this enormous bank 
Come back to Treasury. Or just take a job as an academic or just write out there like a normal person, just have some comments as a private citizen because the fact is it's very hard to take him seriously Mm. when he represents a bank of the size of NAB. I mean, this is a bank that literally has a government guarantee. We will not allow the NAB to fail. So unlike nearly any other business in the country, if the NAB gets into trouble, it will be bailed out by taxpayers. You know, that's a pretty massive public policy issue right there. And, you know, for Ken Henry to be going on about the banking tax, about whether it's a good tax or a bad tax, I mean, yeah, he is the guy who chaired the Henry Tax Review under the Rudd government. So um, I would have thought that the old Ken Henry, who was so instrumental in designing things like the Gillard carbon price and so on and so forth, the Rudd stimulus package, uh, he would be pretty sceptical of uh, big business people making ambit claims, seeking to have taxes on their large business removed, you know. So I just think that he's pretty conflicted, you know. Mm. It's hard to take him seriously. It is, but it also highlights that, you know, he has a huge um, memory of policy as as a senior public servant and perhaps his institutional memory might be better serving the public rather than a bank. Well, it's not serving the public, is it? It's no, serving well, the shareholders the of NAB. <laughs> no. So but uh, but it go. reminds me of uh, of Laura Tingle's essay, Political Amnesia, which I've just reread. And uh, and certainly it would be helpful to have some uh, senior public servants who have a, a significant experience and memory of, of issues like these to be able to contribute to the debate in a meaningful way that, that actually helps it along rather than support some, you know, those who really don't need any more support. Yeah, and look, you know, this I think is actually the coalition's fault. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, yeah. In this um, particular incident, um, when Tony Abbott became the Prime Minister, he fired Ken Henry. Yes. Okay, so. And uh, Martin Parkinson. Indeed. So, in, but after my, my, Martin Parkinson's come back, by the way, Indeed, under yes. Malcolm Turnbull. But Ken Henry was told in no uncertain terms that your services are no longer required because you worked for the previous Labor government. Now, that set a terrible precedent for the independence of the public service. And I think, you know, if we want to have a longer-term memory when it comes to public service and public policy in this country, we need to start taking the public service more seriously and we need to be guaranteeing its independence in a more robust fashion than it is now. And under the coalition, we've seen a further erosion of the independence of the public service, particularly in portfolios like immigration, for example. Mm, Absolutely. Ben, thank you for coming in and chatting about uh, the federal budget with us. I'm sure there'll be more and more developments to come so we'll pick those up next week have a great week yeah thanks amy we have with us on the phone from sydney uh fiona wright who is an author and an essayist and uh, she's just doing some amazing work at the moment um, on non-fiction writing and essays and she's written an essay called measuring imperfection the limits of the quantified self so we're going to be discussing um this essay thanks so much for joining me fiona Oh, not at all. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you back um, to talk about this essay because uh, it is really thought-provoking and, I mean, it's kind of 
the quantifying ourselves has become a bit insidious in terms of how we've really started just integrating it into our everyday lives through technology. And you say that it's not a new thing. It's something that we've been doing uh, previously, but it was perhaps less precise and uh, and more unconscious, the, the way that we measure our, our weight and our movement and our bodily productivity and functions. But now we've got, I guess, as you say, Fitbits and, and a whole movement. Could you discuss or share with the those who are listening um, what the quantified self movement is that you talk about in your essay? Yeah, um, I, I came across them kind of accidentally after um, buying myself a Fitbit, essentially out of peer pressure. <laughs> um, they looked like so much fun. Um, you know, which is a which is a bizarre thing, and it's an accessory, it isn't it? It looks kind of you know cool to wear. <laughs> well, they're they're more and more now. They're just, they're designing them to look more like jewellery and and less like small pieces of rubber, yes. um, which I think is a kind of strange thing. Um, but the the quantified self movement um, that I became very interested in is sort of started in in. San Francisco and Silicon Valley, as you know, a lot of these things do, with some um, you know middle-aged, middle-class white guys um, who became very, very interested in how um, technology that measures you know, different bodily functions. So you've got basic ones like fitness trackers, but also heart rate monitors, um, sleep monitors, uh, all of these sort of various apps decide, designed to measure the minute changes in the body. Um, and they kind of, some of them talk, call it biohacking, this idea that, you know, you can hack your own body um, with the use of technology to kind of measure what it's doing, run little experiments, uh, always with the goal of trying to improve performance and productivity um, and to live longer too, I think, is a part of it as well. But I was really fascinated by this um, desire to, to measure productivity and, and try and improve bodily performance both because it really kind of ties into a lot of my experience um, with disordered eating and and the kind of thinking that goes in there, but also because it seems like such a strange, um, a strange set of uh, um, ideas to be striving towards, this kind of striving towards a sort of perfection or perfectibility, but um, but one that's measured in terms of output um, and this kind of idea of an optimised health that is sort of within your own control. Yeah, it really does. Um, you say that it's meant to give us a sense of empowerment. Um, mm. And, I mean, you you also raise a great point that, yes, this sense of control and this, um, you know, really precise um obsessive measurement is actually part of disordered eating um, and that really to get to a place where someone has, you know, um, lost so much weight, that really does involve a lot of counting and uh, careful, careful thought and measurement. And there is some overlap with this kind of thinking and approach. It doesn't mean that everyone, um, you know, has uh, an eating disorder, but it, it is a similar behaviour that, that this is really propelling in a huge range of people. Um, yeah. What do you, do you think there are, I guess, problems or concerns about how that could um, lead into other things? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the slipperiness of some of those concepts that um, more and more I see now, and especially in a lot of these wellness um, 
kind of the, the kind of um, language of wellness and the ideas that kind of lead into that. Um, really, weirdly similar to a lot of the things that you know I have been taught are pathological in myself. Um, uh, you know, and kind of driven by this uh, intense need to control every control everything and control the body um, to kind of you know be aware of what it's doing and and small minute measurements or taken across the day kind of um, always trying to maximize movement and and, and things like that um, and and to me it's it is concerning um, you know I, I I always say I don't think these things can ever be the cause of an eating disorder in someone um, you know, they're quite, they're far more complex than that. But often um, I've heard so many stories from the people I've met in treatment of one small thing that's been the switch, the thing that's pushed them over the edge. And, you know, for some people that's been celebrity diets or, you know, um, green smoothies or um, or even, you know, getting a Fitbit and becoming obsessed with the with the numbers and always trying to make them greater and greater. Indeed. Yeah, it's like a trigger mm. for some people. Yeah, yeah. And you, and, you know, you, you don't know who has a predisposition until it's too late. Indeed, <laughs> that is the, the huge problem. Um, and you talk about the uh, the idea that the Fitbit that you had quote offered a system of measurement, of accounting, of making meaning from everyday activities and ordinary life, and a concrete kind of striving. It set parameters mm. against which to gave achievement, effort, worth. So, I mean, it's it's not just about measurement and accounting. It also leads to this feeling of um, of achievement and productivity um, that is also a bit, uh, I guess, odd. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that, but but. Also, I guess that's the whole point is if you're measuring it and tracking it and then you're sharing it on Facebook because I see a lot yeah. of people doing that, they're trying to, I guess, positively reinforce um, exercise and behaviour uh, through, you know, their peers but also through themselves. But is this a, a, a good way of um, gauging one's productivity or worth? Oh, it, you know, it's, I, it's, a, it's a really problematic way of... of gauging worth you know I, I think productivity is a really poor measure of a person um, and it's, it's so tied to economics and neoliberal politics that you know you're only valuable um, insofar as what you can contribute and how hard you can work um, you know it, it really is a very simplified idea of what a human being is um, and does and means I guess that um you know, I I always think that these kind of um, obsessive thinking about measurement and control is, is always tied to this um, idea that we we don't know how to think about our own worth anymore um, and and our own own ways of belonging. Um, you know, kind of that it's sort of tied to the um, sort of the way that sort of various institutions that used to provide meaning. Um, have fallen away, you know, religion, family, community ties, that they're sort of, all of those things have morphed into something different um, lately. And and so it's much, much harder to situate yourself. Absolutely. um, Yeah, and we're kind of told that it's our own responsibility to figure that out. Um, So I think numbers can be a really kind of um, easy thing to fill that gap. 
And I mean, if we look at younger people, um, they they grow up, you know, with uh, primary school and high school where it is about marks and grades and numbers. And then you go to university and although things are a little bit freer, it's still about grades and numbers. And then you move into the workforce um, and it's less about numbers and it becomes very nebulous as to what your worth then is. Is it about your wage? Is it about your title? Um, you know, do you have a, a broader conception of worth, a healthier conception of worth, which is, you know, am I a good person? Um, they really, it becomes so unclear and so subjective as to how you measure worth and you have all these other inputs, as you say, such as neoliberalist thinking, such as like human capital, where we're depersonalising yeah. people. I mean, how do we actually reframe um, human worth uh, and I know that's a big question, but, you know, is there, what do you think yeah. we should measure our worth by? <laughs> it's it's very hard. I, you know, um, what what you just mentioned there, where we kind of grow up being measured by marks in school and that falls away. That was that was a very difficult transition for me when I started university, that I was always a, you know, very smart kid, doing very well, um, constantly able to, you know, measure measure that and when i started university and that wasn't there anymore i was absolutely adrift and you know it's at that point that i that i got sick um without really knowing that at the time uh, and i think it really was tied to this sort of sense of measurement um how do i know who i am anymore when being a smart kid isn't enough um you know what i but in terms of how we measure worth um i have been, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I do think it has something to do with um, how we relate to other people. Um, you know, that, that I like to think of it as some sort of web that we, our interconnectedness with other people is, is sort of the most important thing, um, for me at least, trying to figure out a way to um, also have a... a um, an ease which only comes with sort of accepting imperfection um, as as character rather than as a failing if that makes sense yeah definitely um, because your title is measuring imperfection mm. and I mean that it it highlights I guess this these um, different devices and ways of measuring ourselves highlights the gap between um, where we are and where we'd like to be and and yeah. some people would see that as being imperfect or not trying hard enough or not controlling their own lives well enough um, and I guess you know do we need to be more accepting of um where we are and if we're not where we wish we were um actually saying well that's okay well i think the problem is that we we seem to have this message going around that perfectibility is possible um and and you know i think those devices like fitbits kind of have this built into them that they are constantly giving you reminders of how to beat yesterday how to get better how to improve how to walk further and further and further so it's sort of you know, a, a pattern um, that, that's, you know, very much algorithmically tied into these things. But I think we, we believe that in the world too. We have these narratives about progress, um, always going forward, um, trying to, you know, move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And the idea that, you know, um, accepting any sort of imperfection is settling. And I think it's a really dangerous, um, dangerous set of ideas. 
Definitely. And I think it's propelled by um, a culture that uh, really is about upgrading and, you know, mm. moving to the next best thing, such as, you know, the newest phone or the best, um, you know, outfits or whatever it might be that um, people mm. always feel that, well, perhaps they can't be stationary and it's expected of them that they're constantly uh, rising in some way. Yeah, that, that's right. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking more and more too that there's also something vaguely gendered in that as well because all of these ideas about productivity and, and salary and those sorts of things are really tied to um, the workplace and or kind of ideas of how workplaces are supposed to work and don't take into account, you know, unpaid women's labour um, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you quantify that and, um, and really put value on that when uh, it's really quite unseen it's invisible almost to most people yeah. apart from the women doing that work that's right and it's often repetitive and mundane and um and hidden away indeed and one of mm. the things i think that's particularly interesting um that you bring up is around um you know although these uh, devices and other ways of thinking about ourselves can be positive and can have a positive effect on movement you know because we need to keep moving and and people being you know stuck at their desks that is a inherently unhealthy thing mm. but it also can um and and the i just also want to bring in the fact that you know it's not necessarily an inherent problem with technology, but an inherent problem of humanity and the way that we take on technology and use it, which can be really what's most problematic. Um, but also that, I mean, we're looking at um, our bodies and we're measuring things through an outside or an external device. But what about our internal measurements? Because as you say, you know, our mind and our bodies aren't separate and, you know, we are constantly monitoring our our own um, bodily feelings and sensations. Are we removing ourselves too far from that or perhaps desensitising ourselves from our ability to pick up on changes within ourselves? Yeah, I, I did read some wonderful stories when I was when I was doing the research for, for the essay about people who had apps um, to remind them um, that it was time to drink more water um, yes. to make sure they got their six glasses in a day. Yeah. Or some of the Fitbits have little alarms in them that say, you know, you haven't moved for thirty minutes or whatever, and it's you know time to get up. Um, and I, I found that really strange. Um, another kind of strange overlap too because you know i i use um I, I use an app called recovery record that's quite a common one um for people recovering from eating disorders to use it actually has an alarm to remind you to eat um now we need that because we've completely lost track um of our body's hunger cues they you know when you deprive yourself of food the your hunger cues eventually go away entirely and so it can be very confusing to try and you know eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, you've got to you've got to retrain your body, um, and that that loss of um, you know losing those cues was a was a really kind of strange and affecting thing for me. That you know they're still not back, and I've been working on them for years. Um, you know, and and I think it's just a it, it's it's a weird alienation um, that that can happen when you're sort of trying to measure and regulate a body, um, which isn't always something that is regular or measured. Um, you know, we don't know enough about how bodies work and the more we know, the more we realise that they're very complex and complicated 
and there's some sort of system going on and changing one thing can change, you know, can have effects that we, we don't quite understand yet. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of our earlier discussion in January about the fact that nutrition science is still so new and early. I mean, um, you know, there's a whole range of um, bodily sciences that are still in their infancy in, in terms of the complexity that exists and our understanding of its complexity, in particular, like neuroscience is one of those areas. That's right, yeah. But also you talk about um, how... If we are measuring ourselves and um, keeping track of our bodies and uh, focusing on eating the best food and doing the greatest exercise for our health for longer life um, to avoid, you know, illnesses, well, the fact is sometimes we can't control these things and perhaps suggesting that we might be able to puts an unfair or unnecessary pressure or guilt on people who then do develop an illness that was out of their control. That's right. I think I think that's the biggest danger that, you know, we have this idea that, that health is controllable and that it's our own responsibility and that, and that if something goes wrong, it means that you have failed to, you know, regulate your body properly. Um, there's been one of the interesting things I, I read um, recently was about, um, I've been doing research into um, instances of lung cancer, for example, um, and... Uh, have found that even the way that doctors and nurses treat lung cancer patients who are smokers or who were smokers versus those who weren't smokers um, is is different. That there's this sense that you know the smokers earned their illness and the other ones are unfortunate and tend to get much more compassionate treatment. Um, and I and I think that kind of um, you know that's a kind of extreme manifestation of of a kind of wider wider belief. Yeah, and also we, we see these, I guess, discussions of, oh, well, but they were really healthy and they exercised all the time mm. and, and somehow, you know, they were just so unlucky that that they got unwell. I mean, there are other environmental factors that contribute to, to illness that we can't um, necessarily control, such as air pollution. Um, you know, there's just so many things um, that, I mean... Well, not, to, not to mention the kind of social ones like you know, generational poverty, um, you know, income, access to healthcare, those sorts of things. Absolutely, yes, definitely. I mean, when, mm. you know, when there are so many factors and so much complexity within this issue, um, although we do want people to take charge of their health and make sure they're looking after themselves, is there, you know, a middle ground to say, well... Um, I guess just to reduce the pressure on people to think that, well, yes, some things are within your control, but there is only so much one can do. Um, and that, you know, you also have a lot of other things going on in your life. Yeah, I, I think the way to think about it would be like risk minimisation rather than prevention. Um, you know, because you can't, you can't prevent illness, um, you, you know, and, and I think, you know, the small measures that people make to control their health really are a means of mitigating risk um, or, or minimising risk. But, you know, um, even when you've done everything right, things still go wrong. Um, and, I, you know, the other thing that really bothers me about, you know, the ideas here is this idea that every disease has a clear cause and every disease, therefore, can be cured. Um, and, we, and we know that's not true and it does a huge disservice to people who live with chronic illness um, and disability. 
Indeed. And um, and that disability takes many forms and sometimes it's right. um, invisible to the average person. Mm, absolutely. Um, I just, I really am loving your work at the moment, Fiona, and I know you've written another essay in um, the Sydney Review of Books, which um, we won't get to delve into too much, but it, it is about uh, renting. And I'm sure That's that right. many people can relate to uh, your writing on this, on this, and it's, you, they can actually uh, read it. It's online and free to access. Um, and just briefly, I know you have now, you know, moved into a new house and you've had, you've had to move so many times, but you you highlight the um, insecurity that that young people particularly, but others as well, who are on lower incomes face in the renting market. Um, I mean, what is propelling your non-fiction writing at the moment? Because um, it's just so excellent. <laughs> and I just wanted to know what your secret is. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew that. Um, I'm enjoying it a lot. I know that's that's important, but I, I think all of the essays that I'm writing at the moment are um, interested in one way or another about you know, the idea of, of home or belonging or um, or being situated. Um, you know, and, and often sometimes that has to do with houses and housing. Um, you know, and there's nothing like moving house to to make you think about that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but these bigger questions of you know being at home in the body and in the world. Are, are a part of that too. Um, you know, I think I think these are questions that people have been asking forever, um, and I don't think that anything that is happening in the world at the moment, or with technology, is new. I think technology just tends to um, amplify, uh, you know, um, things that have been going on already and make them social and shareable in a way that we're not used to. Um, but I do think they're, you know, very old and very human impulses. Absolutely, given a slightly new, slightly new bend. Yeah, and and yeah, absolutely. This this essay is, you know, although it's framed around, the, I guess, the new developments in technology um, and the changes, the cultural changes that we have in terms of social media and sharing our our health and well being. Um, it really does come back to our humanity and um, essentially who we are and our our human impulses um, and how we might be in better in touch with. Um, with who we are deep down, when you strip all of that away and the consumerism and the other layers, you know, w- let's look at um, the essentials of our lives and um, how we can f- reframe it in a more positive, helpful way. And I think a lot of it too is just about being gentler with, it, with ourselves and with each other. Mm. Um, that continual striving is not a fun way to live. No, <laughs> that's very true. Um, so, but you know, some people have that built into their personalities. I yes, might be one true. of them, <laughs> and <laughs> no, I potentially am. you. Yeah. Um, so, I just also want to raise that um, it's actually um, May Days for Eating Disorders, which is an awareness and advocacy month um, this year. Year. Uh, and the Butterfly Foundation does some really important work for people um, who have eating disorders and also for their families. Um, so if anyone wants to help out, um, you know, to donate to the Butterfly Foundation or any other, um, you know, great organisation that does work in this area, they can do that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's always important to raise awareness of this and also to see that um, we need to take it seriously and to to not see it as kind of something that affects a small proportion of people because um, perhaps it's slightly more prevalent than even we realise. 
Yeah, it's in, it's incredibly prevalent. Um, I've I've forgotten the statistics, but it's it's actually millions of Australians, um, and men and women both, all ages, um, you know, and, and all kinds of backgrounds as well. Definitely. Yep. Thank you, Fiona Wright, for joining us and to share with us um, your wonderful thinking. Um, just wonderful to, to get a sense of where you're at um, with your writing as well, because uh, uh, Ben Eltham, who was in earlier, we were both remarking on um, the wonderful women writers in nonfiction at the moment, which I think are really overtaking the men. Not that it's a competition, but uh, it's great to see that there's some really diverse <laughs> and interesting non-fiction writing happening so thank you Fiona. Thank you. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins and uh, we are absolutely blessed to have the wonderful Laura Tingle with us from Canberra. Um, She's written uh, a few essays and a couple of them you may be familiar with. They're still absolute classics. You can read them and it was like they were written yesterday um, because they are just so current and they really take a wonderful step back to look at the broader picture and the historical developments that have uh, happened in terms of the way that we govern ourselves and do politics. And uh, Laura has also written a new essay uh, on Turnbull in Power, which is featured in this book, In Search of Good Government, out via Black Ink, but is also available to read uh, via the monthly as well. So thank you very much, Laura, for joining us. G'day, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I know you've been very busy um, making trips up to Sydney and whatnot, so thank you for sharing uh, your time and, and views with us. My pleasure. So um, you've got this wonderful collection of essays out at the moment. It's just uh, recently released. It's called In Search of Good Government and it features a couple of your quarterly essays which are, I mean, they are standalone amazing. Um, so it's wonderful to have them in one tome um, for people to really reread. And I just, I, I reread both, but in particular, Great Expectations stood out to me um, because of, I guess, the the way that it's still so relevant in terms of um, this disconnect of the public's expectations of what government can do for it and also the politicians' lack of clarity as to um, what they can and should deliver on. So um, I'd really like to, if we can, take a step back to that essay. Um, Mm. And I mean, you do some really interesting historical research around the idea that um, the uh, the way that we govern ourselves and um, our expectations of government were formed even before federation. It was in the the 19th century in Australia that uh, we actually, the way that we governed ourselves as a colony, um, you know, evolved and that mm. a lot of those expectations are still ingrained. I mean, could you mm. share with us some of what you discovered and what your thoughts are on, on that and the influence mm. of the earliest um, ways of governing in Australia? Sure. Uh, look, it, uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the first essay, was, uh, which I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, writing, partly because of uh, the sort of journey it took me on. That's always a terrible cliche, isn't it? But, <laughs> um, when, when, when I started to think about you know, how, what is it that we uh, think government is and what, what do we think it does for us, I thought, well, you know, what's the history of this in Australia? So I went back and looked, and as you say, uh, really just went right back to the first fleet and um, what I sort of ended up 
coming up with and arguing in the essay was that, you know, we've got this real history of uh, sort of quite uh, significant state paternalism uh, in Australia. We like to sort of see ourselves as rugged individuals and all that sort of stuff, but right back to the First Fleet, if you think about it, you know, we were this penal colony. Uh, government as such was uh, was sort of, was basically overwhelming um, and... Uh, the the, uh, the uh, convicts had to rely on um, on on the uh, the officials of the day to feed them and and quite happily did so. I, I used a lot of research from um, the late uh, historian John Hurst, uh, which is absolutely fascinating about both the convict period and the early colonial period and how our relationship uh, with uh, with England also really framed our thinking. You know, we're always sort of looking to England to be given some extra powers as, as the colony developed. Um, and sort of we're basically always having to sort of beg to be allowed to govern ourselves. Um, and it, it did make us very sort of compliant and, you know, and uh, our economy was very uh, government-centred, of course, right up until the era of Macquarie. Uh, and and beyond. Um, so I, I think we really underestimate the extent to which uh, you know this is this is really ingrained in us. So there's been a lot of focus on the post federation settlement uh, in the wake of Paul Kelly's book in the 1990s um, about deregulation, you know, about the fact that we had these centralised wage systems, we had protection all around. They were new manifestations of this state paternalism, but. As a sort of a as a sort of a social sort of mindset, it really does go right back to the earliest days um, of the colony, and I don't think it ever really left us. Uh, and this is why I argue that in the, the what's happened in the 1980s, where suddenly we deregulated the economy and sort of said the private sector knows best and all those sorts of things, it, it was just too hard a habit for people to break, both politicians and people to expect that um, the government still couldn't basically influence the way our lives ran. Yeah, I mean, you you raise a great point that, uh, I mean, it is in the colonial era that we see these developments and there was an abundance of um, labour in terms of people available to do the work, so they inherently had greater power to push back on those wanting them to do the work, um, so there were a few slackers who didn't really want to pull their weight. But also then when you get to the, uh, the 1980s and you see the Hawke and Keating era, um, you know, you talk about the fact that transport, banking, electricity, water, insurance and telecommunications were once wholly owned or heavily shaped by major publicly owned institutions. So, you know, government control up to the 1980s was prevalent throughout all of our essential services, really. Um, So, I mean, even coming up to recent history, it's understandable perhaps that 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 it still continues our expectations um, and this disconnect that we've now have since the changes that were made by um, Hawke and Keating and, you know, the privatisation of many of those services, if not all of them, mm. really. Um, mm. well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, well, I, yeah, well I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, and I, I suppose it's sort of a shock. or not. It's, uh, it's, you've got to sort of adjust uh, your sort of thinking about this to realise that for a lot of people now, they... they wouldn't know that all of these things were actually once done by government. But absolutely, you know, the sorts of uh, exasperated conversations you have now with Telstra 
or um, your electricity provider or your insurance company, you were once having uh, those arguments with arms of government, uh, but uh, instead of the private sector. Um, and it just gives you a sense of how extensive the role of government was. And the, when they were in these sectors, there weren't clear price signals. There were lots of cross-subsidies. So the sort of sense that you might actually be paying a lot of money for a lot of services um, was not necessarily all that prevalent. Um, but, you know, the government was in banking, owned the Commonwealth Bank, uh, and it was there to basically provide sort of a, not just competition, but to provide a sort of a base against which the other banks had to compete, if you know what I mean, that that uh, it, it was there to sort of keep the others honest. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think it, I, the mindset involved in that, I think, is uh, is really fascinating. I, I agree because... Um you you almost get a sense now that there's a nostalgia for publicly owned uh, services and that people now with this sense of um, feeling out of control or at least the government having less control, um, it, it feels as if sometimes it would be much easier to just go back to when uh, government was responsible and could control some of these uh, key essential elements that affect everyone in Australia. Obviously, that's an unrealistic and perhaps unproductive um, thought to have, but it seems almost a, a bit instinctive within the Australian mm. electorate. Do you think that? Well, I think there's two really two fascinating uh, aspects to this, Amy. One of them is that uh, you can see in the budget which we had last week that the government itself has come to the view that uh, people people do like governments doing stuff. You know, that's a really clear underlying message of, of the budget. But I think there's sort of a second issue, which is there's also sort of a, a certain sense um, in the you know across the community that there are some things that maybe the government just does do better. You know, that there are these markets which you can't replicate in the private sector because they're oligopolistic or monopolistic. Um, and so you've now got the government saying, well, we're going to build, own and operate the second Sydney airport. Why is that? Well, it's because Sydney airport uh, was sold off, as were most of the others um, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and it's now this fairly sort of spectacular spectacular monopoly which was given the right to say whether Sydney could have a second airport and strangely enough you know who would have guessed it said oh no no we're not going to build the second airport mm. so well, the government has had to intervene against its own against government's own original decision if you like to say well but that's not going to happen we're going to actually set up a second airport and we're going to run it because otherwise it's not going to get built so it's sort of coming the full circle where governments have to actually do have to intervene. Um, you know, it was once the case that the argument was made that oh, if we leave the private sector to do things, you'll get these outcomes that won't happen with governments because governments can't afford to do this stuff. But in fact, now it's coming full circle and they're saying, no, governments have to do these things because the private sector won't because the uh, incentive isn't there for them. Indeed. Well, in a, in a profit-driven, um, shareholder-focused environment, there's naturally different uh, motivations to do projects than there are for government. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it became unfashionable to think that, um, you know, that, that 
there were, there were these different incentives, and sometimes uh, you know the incentives uh, running governments were much better, uh, or you know were, were equally uh, acceptable, um, and, and everything had to be uh, via the, the private sector model. And I just think around the world you're seeing uh, a reversion to this, and and in some ways. You know, even Donald Trump represents that. You know, it's, he's he's promising to fix things for people, um, mm. uh, you know, get them their jobs, uh, you know, intervene in uh, in the economy in all sorts of ways. So it's it's a bit of a continuum there. Definitely. And the, those reforms in the Hawke-Keating era, such as um, deregulating our economy and opening up Australia to the world financially, mm. um, you know, have really increased and propelled globalisation. And, you know, we ha- are seeing the backlash, I guess, of the, the decreased control or national control that we have over, um, you know, how we interact with other states and with other markets as well. And mm. in, your, in that essay, you say that in the failure to break down the habits of state paternalism, we have the seeds of much of our modern national anger. And, um, and you opened that essay with this uh, great anecdote uh, about Amanda Vanstone um, and you were having a meal with her in, in Italy and this idea of Australians as being angry is quite a, an odd one because people and ourselves, we, we often think that we're very laid back and, you know, pretty um, non-confrontational. But there's something about this which I think continues and has almost increased um, in recent times, this anger that we have about mm. politics and policy and our politicians. And, and I mean, most of that anger is directed at the politicians um, themselves. Mm. And uh, I'm just interested to see, first of all, uh, we'll get to how the implications of that are for Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership. Mm. But first of all, um, looking more broadly, you ask, do we Australians understand that government no longer has the control of things it it once did, and mm. um, and that it has less ability to fund services. Um, are we comfortable with this idea, or do we need to have a discussion about actually what do we think government's role is in Australian society? Do we need to ha- to reassess or have a realistic discussion and look at what is the role of government for both a Labor and a coalition government? And I know that's probably dreaming pretty big, but um, <laughs> would that solve some of the, the disconnect, do you think? Well, I, I think that it's actually, I mean, as you say, I wrote this um, a few years ago now, but um, it's to me, it's, it's all sort of basically coming true. I mean, I think that's what, exactly what we're doing at the moment. We're, we're having this discussion about the role of government um, where, where you've got, um, in the last week in particular, the coalition saying, yes, we, we do understand that people want government to look after, uh, look after them, you know, whether it's you know, embracing Medicare, the NDIS, um, putting taxes up to do to, to do those uh, public services, um, and I think a lot of, as I say in the essay, there's um, a lot of this anger is about the fact that politicians have continued to talk over the last thirty years um, as if they're controlling things when they haven't been. So the sort of sense of disappointment is greater. And um, I mean, uh, one classic example would be both. Uh, on housing affordability um, and uh, and interest rates, uh, more specifically over the years, uh, you know, where both sides of politics have basically claimed credit for low interest rates and blamed the other side for high interest rates, when in fact 
you know, if there's one price signal uh, in the economy that they haven't been controlling in the in the last 10 or 20 years in particular, it's interest rates. So that's the, an example of the sort of disconnect. The same thing with the debate about housing affordability. Now, uh, Labor has sort of said that it would uh, do negative gearing changes and capital gains tax changes to help housing affordability. Uh, the government has had a, a different proposal which is you know nowhere near as radical uh, but whatever the proposals are you know this suggestion that somehow governments can step in and you know dramatically change the housing market is probably not very realistic and scott morrison the treasurer has been sort of facing the backlash of that because uh, he's now saying, well, look, there's not all that much we can do, but we can change things along along at the margin. But people have sort of expected the government to be able to sort of click its fingers and make, make things better. Um, and that just seems pretty unrealistic um, in, a, in housing markets of the sorts of sizes uh, that we've got uh, in Australia, um, you know, in the modern era. Indeed, and um, that they can solve uh, wage growth and, you know, that can be done through company tax cuts is also yeah. questionable. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're talking about, I guess, the things that politicians can't do. Um, there are some things they can do that they choose not to do. Do you think that's where some of the anger comes from, is that, well, even the levers that you have, you're choosing not to, to use? Um, what, what did you have in mind? Well, such as capital gains tax is one of those. Yeah. I think you mentioned in your newest essay that they really, they ruled out changes to the CGT, um, mm. you know, pretty early on when Labor had opened the door for them to do something. And perhaps yeah. that maybe closing that door is unhelpful for them now or even into the future. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I think people do get that sense um, and this has been one of the things about Malcolm Turnbull's Prime Ministership, you know, that he is seen as being like this do-nothing guy and that, that he's hemmed in, you know, and I think people get uh, really angry because they feel that he's just completely nobbled um, and has allowed himself to be nobbled um, by his Conservative wing on social policies uh, and uh, and nobbled um, in sort of the economic terms as well by uh the sort of coalition constituency. Uh, so, um, yes, I think people sort of want to believe that uh, you can take a policy action and it will have some sort of effect. Of course, whether it actually would have an effect or not, you know, is it, not entirely clear, but capital gains tax is a real example of something where I think they could have done a lot more, um, you know, without, without it being uh, a retrospective measure, uh, it would have been a much better signal in the economy to what is, without doubt, a, a, a huge overinvestment in housing. Um, and the fact that they don't do it um, is, is frustrating for people. But I think, I suppose the essay is more making a, 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 an underlying point about this sort of sense of what, you know, trying to define what it is governments should do in either way, not necessarily about individual policy measures and whether they take them. Indeed. But um, as you say, we're having, I guess, an indirect discussion about what government now can do with this turnaround in, in you know, talking about um, deficit and surplus and the need to actually raise revenue is a, is a new change. And obviously raising revenue means that government does have a bigger role to play. Um mm -hmm. 
Well, let's looking at your your new essay um, that's out, and people can read this in the book In Search of Good Government, as well as um, through the the monthly, uh, the latest edition of the monthly. And you talk about Malcolm Turnbull's leadership style and his mode of operating and doing government. Um, mm. And first of all, you you point out that we don't have the uh, bad Malcolm, in inverted commas, um, the the kind of Malcolm that we saw uh, when he was opposition leader who um, had a bit of a, a temper sometimes and... Um, a bit. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. Sorry, I, yeah, I was yep. um, underplaying that a little, but uh, yes. yeah, so, yep. you know, th- that is a development and a change, um, an evolution, if you will, um, in terms of the way that uh, Malcolm Turnbull is conducting himself as Prime minister so um that is one positive uh but also that um you you talk about the fact that little attention has really been paid to the mechanics of how malcolm turnbull is running his government and he came in talking about restoring a cabinet government and um you know implementing proper process and also not only advocating for policy but explaining why we needed it and you know Mm. making that case for change I mean, do you think that that mode of operation um, is currently how Turnbull is is conducting himself and his government? Hmm. Uh, well, there are a few things. One of them is um, that I think he ha- he has been uh, he he's gone to great lengths to try to do what he said in some ways, like re-establishing cabinet government. What does that mean? It means letting ministers get on with the job. Um, making uh, sort of uh, collective decisions uh, about things. I think he has tried as much as possible to actually implement that. Um, and uh, that's been both good and bad for him <laughs> and for us. Um, you know, you've got somebody uh, who's very, a very competent minister like Simon Birmingham, the education minister. Uh, you know, whether you like what, the, what he's now put forward, he's found a way of repositioning the government on higher education schools funding. Other ministers, you know, I don't know why George Brandis comes to mind, you know, not so successful, but, you know, you've, you've got to sort of not just look at a, a prime minister, you've got to look at an entire government um, and its various parts. I think one of the really interesting things, going back to your sort of summary of what he said he was going to do when he came in that hasn't worked, which is sort of a bit surprising to me, is that he hasn't been a very good explainer. In fact, he's a terrible explainer. Uh, he, considering he's a, a barrister by by background and and was a journalist for a while, he's not a very good advocate. Uh, he he often doesn't articulate uh, positions particularly well. He can either, as they say, mal-explain and over-explain some issue, or not explain it at all. Um, and I think you know that's a bit of a that's a fairly sort of fundamental flaw if you're a prime minister uh, and or a politician. So. Uh, and he's and he's not a natural politician either. He's not particularly good at politics. Uh, so um, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. But I think uh, I, I felt in the essay that it was time that we sort of just go. Well, what is this guy actually doing? Uh, how's he operating? Because you know, people get angry about the fact that he doesn't do things um, or that you know this, he is seen as compromised, but they don't actually sort of think about how he approaches things. Mm. And to me, one of the, to me, one of the really fascinating questions is, you know, he, is, he sort of sees himself as this problem solver who sort of comes into the office every day and this sort of fits in with what he's always done, you know, and said, okay, what's today's problem, you know, and how do we go about fixing it? Um, and 
whatever the solution is, um, by doing that rather than starting at some overall strategic position and sort of slotting bits into it, uh, you know, it doesn't sort of really sort of lend itself to having some, you know, really clear strategic plan either politically or in a policy sense. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard to see how that works for him. But having said that, I think, you know, the interesting thing about the budget is that it does give the government a fairly coherent sort of new story to tell between now and the next election and, and, and a plan of sorts um, and a repositioning. Uh, and I think that all of those things reflect the fact that it was a um, collective uh strategy, if you like. It was put together by the Cabinet, by the senior members of the government, not just by Malcolm Turnbull. And they're singing, as they say, from the same song sheet um, for the first time in a very long time. You know, everybody's basically agreed on what should be going on. Yes, absolutely they are. It's quite surprising. Um, <laughs> and you raised some great points there about um, the deficits in terms of Turnbull's leadership and his communication and also skills to be political and set a strategic agenda. I mean, it is true that, as you say, um, we shouldn't be measuring um, this government by the Prime Minister only. It should be, you know, the collective because it is a team effort. Um, he's a figurehead and he's one of the most, if not the sen most senior um, in the government, but he's not responsible for absolutely everything that happens. Um, and But one of the interesting things you say, um, and you've mentioned there, is his idea about problem solving. And, uh, I mean, you say that he's somewhat of a deal-maker. He comes in and he identifies a problem, he assesses the current evidence and, and issue and then responds with a solution that's timely and of that moment. And and that's how there's some, um, in his mind, disconnect or surprise that people um, are disappointed with his changing position on climate change. And you highlight that, um, and I find that particularly telling is that, uh, you know, he initially advocated for an emissions trading scheme and at the mm. time that was the, the right thing to do um, and it, mm. there were, it was ripe. Um, Australia was ripe for an ETS. And then you go on to say, well, circumstances have changed and perhaps... Australia isn't ripe for that or, you know, he's reassessed the evidence afresh and thinks that there should be a new direction, but he hasn't really communicated it. I mean, is, how do you, how does he see himself and his, his changes in policy position um, as, as dealmaker Malcolm? Mm. Well, he, uh, he sort of, uh, he said in an interview with me in December, look, you know, ideology is just people who won't look at facts, you know, um, and, uh, so, he, you know, his position on something like climate change keeps morphing. And for him, uh, he would say to you now, look, look where we're going. You know, I'm, I'm actually doing quite a lot for renewables uh, because I'm, you know, pumped hydro is, is, is the huge thing. You know, that's, that's going to be a huge renewable energy source. He's very keen on wind power. He thinks that the market... Um, uh, is just looking after itself on photovoltaic uh, solar power. Um, so he would sort of say, look, this is all basically heading where we probably want it to go anyway. But he's now obsessed about gas, you know, and the fact there isn't any gas uh, for a you know, range of reasons for which both sides are responsible. Um, and so he argues that 
sort of the latest manifestation of the emissions trading scheme, which is the so-called emissions intensity scheme for the uh, electricity generation sector, the, the, the rationale for that also doesn't work if you don't have uh, a ready gas supply, which we don't. So Malcolm Turnbull's always sort of looking at where things are up to and sort of saying, well, what's the, what's the best outcome we can get in the circumstances, rather than saying, um, you know, well, this is where we want to end up and what do we have to do to get there, if you know what I mean. He's, he's sort of work, working from the other end of the, of the, uh, of the question. Mm. And, and uh, if, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, this going back to the sort of uh, Great Expectations essay, ultimately, you know, governments, people are looking to governments to say this is where we want to go. And um, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't really necessarily ever say that. He's saying, well, let's just see what, what uh, what's going on at the moment and uh, work out, you know, what's the best we can make of it. And I think that's uh, something that people find a, a, a somewhat disconcerting sort of approach. And, you know, it, it'll be fascinating to see if it works for him um, because it does seem to be in some ways the antithesis of what politicians do. Indeed, it's completely um, against our expectations of, of what a leader of the country would be doing. You know, we would ex- expect them to set the strategy and the agenda and, and have an idea of the horizon that we're moving towards. Um, and I guess in, initially in the earlier stages of Malcolm, um, we saw some kind of vision um, or at least maybe it was the way that he uh, he presented it that it, w- it was about I have a vision I want to Australia to be an innovation nation and to be agile mm. and and using all that kind of terminology and framing has set an expectation um, that mm. perhaps he can't deliver upon using uh, his current leadership style do you think that mm. there's um, perhaps reason to alter um, his leadership style if if possible uh, well, I suppose there are a couple of things. One of them is that, um, you know, one of the points I make in this uh, sort of most recent essay uh, is about this whole sort of prime ministerial soap opera. You know, the fact if you, uh, to, if you top a prime minister, you know, reasonably regularly, you know, the discussion changes from being will the government win the next election to will the prime minister survive till the next election. And that's applied to, what, the last three or four prime ministers. So it all becomes about him and how he survives. But one of the questions I ask in the essay is, well, you know, what's the appropriate time frame that we give people to establish themselves as prime ministers in circumstances where they've come in in an abnormal uh, way? Because, you know, as we've seen with um, Julie Gillard and with um, Malcolm Turnbull, we get this uh, thing where they get locked in by the previous incumbents policy positions and it's very hard for them to just dump everything and start all over again so it's taken Malcolm Turnbull really until this budget almost two years into his prime ministership before he's been able to you know re-establish a new platform if you like of his own government that wasn't just completely bogged down by stuff uh, that were sort of was legacy issues of, of Tony Abbott so you know one one of the questions is where, where do we start judging Malcolm Turnbull from? Uh, and two, you know, do we watch how Prime Ministers develop in the job? Now, I think he's probably become better at being Prime Minister than he was 12 months ago, uh, certainly better than he was in the federal election campaign. Um, and all Prime Ministers do develop over time. I mean, the first couple of years of the Howard government were atrocious. They were just, you know, one political debacle after another. 
whether or not you thought his subsequent policies were good or bad, that they were very well managed. So it's possible that we, we are seeing Malcolm Turnbull gradually developing in the job anyway. Uh, but one of the other points I make in the essay is, uh, you know, yes, there are all these expectations set by what he said when he became Prime Minister, but I think one of the really fascinating issues to me, which I can't quite answer myself, is why we all had such huge expectations of what he would be before that time. Um, and I tell a story about how, you know, six weeks after the 2013 election, people would be saying to me, when's Malcolm coming back? And I'd say, no, what? Now, Tony Abbott <laughs> just won a landslide election. What, what are you talking about Malcolm for? But everybody was on the lookout for Malcolm Turnbull to come back to the opposition leadership from very, very early on in the Abbott government. And, you know, what is it that Malcolm Turnbull represented to people? Um, you know, was it that he was seen as a man of the centre mm. and uh, we thought we thought uh, that the electorate had overshot in um, going to the right with Tony Abbott? Was it that they didn't really ever like Tony Abbott much anyway, they just wanted to get rid of the Labor government? You know, there are all sorts of possible scenarios here, but I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of our, shall we say, our relationship with uh, the current Prime Minister. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And, I mean, it, perhaps I, I'm leaning towards centrism and um, this idea of, I guess, the wet liberals who, um, you know, do tend to reflect much of um, the broader populace, definitely not all, but Australia is often seen as um, economically dry or conservative but socially um, progressive. Perhaps people saw Malcolm as a torchbearer for that uh, feeling within Australia, I'm not sure. And also perhaps it was the leather jackets on Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. Um, yeah. But if you, think, if you think about that, Amy, the really interesting thing is that where we're up to with Malcolm Turnbull at the moment is that um, rather than being economically conservative and socially progressive, uh, he's basically in this position where he's socially conservative mm. and economically progressive. Um, now, the question is, if this budget works in a sense that uh, you know, it, things settle down. Um, you know, the, there's not a lot of contention with the Senate because they've stru structured the budget in a way where there's not going to be a lot of issues that are contentious. There will be some. Um, if if the government sort of now has a clearer strategy, if Labor's under pressure to reposition because of what the government's done, does that uh, does that give the Prime Minister enough authority to start? pushing back against the Conservatives on the social issues if he if he thinks that this uh, is something that he can do and should do. Yes, exactly. Um, so solidifying his position, political position, in the lead-up to the next election, that will mm -hmm. be really very interesting to watch. Uh, Laura, thank you so much. It's just been a delight to have you on and to really delve into these issues and actually step back for once. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for writing these wonderful essays. Uh, well, my pleasure, Amy, and always lovely to talk to you. As as it is for me. Yes, this is 3RRRFM. You're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio two special guests um, who have come in to generously give their time and discuss a really important topic, which is uh, the art world in Melbourne, photography in Melbourne, and the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Melbourne. So thank you to CCP Director Naomi Cass and also artist Claire Ray for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's great 
to have you and um, really an important occasion, I think, because um, Melbourne has some really wonderful galleries that do important work in terms of nurturing the talent that is coming through and rising um, in Australia as well as, um, I guess, giving space to play for those who have emerged and are, you know, practising artists and who want to experiment and try new things as well. So um, that's something that it seems like the Centre for Contemporary Photography uh, really provides is this wonderful nurturing space for artists. Um, Naomi, I just want to go to you first in terms of setting up um, the Centre for Contemporary Photography. If people haven't yet visited or aren't aware of your work, uh, why was it set up um, and how does it run? 31 years ago, um, artists and writers uh, and historians gathered around a sense that photography was an important part of the creative world but was a little bit neglected within the, uh, the, the art that was contemporary then within that domain. Photography at that stage was obviously very important for families in communicating with each other and the media, but there was a neglect of photography as an art form. And uh, 31 years later, we're going strong and photography has changed now. It is clearly... Uh, critical to people's, again, people's personal interaction and it plays an important role within the general uh, political communications and uh, media communications. However, photography is now ubiquitous. It's uh, You can hardly step out of your front door and not encounter a photographic image on a tr tram, train, bus shelter, billboard. But the difference is when you come to CCP, photography is not in the service of the marketplace mm. or the economy or any particular political agenda. We come, step into CCP, it's very exciting public space. So uh, this is a special environment in our society as well where you're not being spoken to as a credit card or a... a potential um, voter, you're there as a human being to explore work by other human beings. And that's a very exciting place to work and to visit. Yes, you describe that perfectly. Um, <laughs> it's almost like a sanctuary, really. And the, the architecture, like the space itself is very, uh, has that vibe, that kind of feeling that you're stepping into a place that um, is stripped back of that commercial um, quality. And it's really almost a, a secular church. You know, you're mm. walking in and, um, and really experiencing the full breadth of humanity and the different ways you can see each other we have to protect the sort of environments that are open to the public free to enter that are generative and welcoming it doesn't mean you know it's not prozac on the wall it doesn't mean you'll always find something you love or um, even understand uh, it is a place for experiment and growth for artists and for audiences as well. And there are lots of opportunities for people to take classes, um, exhibit their own work at CCP in our salon exhibition. It uh, is a place that is responsive to human beings. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's a not-for-profit, so um, that's an important aspect as well. Well, it's, it's quite important at this time of year when we do our fundraiser uh, that the arts are primarily subsidised by 
No, not government. No, not philanthropists, but by the artists. And we are very um, grateful and respectful of the contribution that artists make and they are invited to donate 100 or 80% of uh, the sale to CCP and people just step forward out of the woodwork with with great um, mutual respect. Absolutely. And Claire, that's Mm. a perfect time to talk to you. Um, One of the artists who has donated one of your works to this uh, fundraiser, and it's also an exhibition so people can see it after opening night um, and, you know, experience these works as well, can't they? Absolutely. Yes, it looks great. Excellent. So Claire, your piece is called Untitled Number One and it's from a series that you um, put together called Climbing the Walls and Other Actions from Mm -hmm. 2009. I'm really interested in um, the theme of your work in general, but also particularly this uh, collection of works because it features... um, a female in precarious positions and often defying gravity or doing things which um, provoke, you know, ideas about, um, I guess, her relationship to the environment and um, and you talk about aspects of femininity and your particular, I guess, um, dialogue with your own femininity. Could you please, yeah. I guess, share with um, us the motivation behind this particular work and that collection? Oh, sure. Um, so that work came out of my honours year at RMIT at the sort of end of my photography degree. Um, and it was actually exhibited at CCP in 2009. So I thought it was a really kind of appropriate work to donate back to the CCP. Yeah. I'm very happy to show it back there again. Um, the work uh, or that series specifically kind of came out of research that I was doing about uh, imaging women's bodies, specifically my own body. It's me as the protagonist in all of the photographs. Uh, and I was trying to kind of get at um, imaging my, you know, very personal experience of, you know, being a woman, sort of what that means in terms of identity, I guess, you know, very broadly, uh, but also my sort of experience of... Um, of a of a femininity that I feel I felt and still feel is is you know often very awkward. It is really precarious. Um, it is uh, you know not a kind of um, easy way to move through the world for I think a lot of women. So um, I mean I you know hesitate to speak for anybody else, but uh, I was sort of you know trying to kind of give this sort of representation of um, yeah this kind of experience that that uh, I felt was um, conflicted. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, it is a femininity that isn't a stereotype and it's not a commercialised femininity either. Mm. It's something that is inherently human and individual. Yeah. And I just kind of want to understand a bit more about, you know, what you perceive to be that femininity and what makes it precarious. Uh, I mean, I think sort of around the time that I was making that work I was uh, reading a lot of sort of feminist theory and and actually through art school I really had quite an amazing feminist awakening I mean I think a lot of people do at uni (laughs) yeah definitely Um, so I was kind of really looking at uh, the things I was seeing around me particularly the way I was seeing women represented you know in sort of society more broadly and really questioning those um, 
uh, you know, sort of stereotypes and tropes that that I had taken for granted for a long time. And and so I I sort of um, you know started to kind of feel really agitated about these sort of depictions of women that were often very passive and very submissive and uh, you know just kind of um, it really sort of spurned this desire to uh, create these images that kind of really resisted that in a way but also um, tried to I guess kind of subvert them in a way and most of the photographs in that series and I had done a little bit of work beforehand and afterwards were set in domestic spaces which was kind of um you know the sort of ideas of, do- of domestic space is very interlinked with ideas of womanhood um so that was quite important and uh and I sort of I mean it's the title is quite literal I, I literally felt like I was climbing the walls and and really um mm you know, sort of was trying to promote that <laughs> real <laughs> sense of in some way on standing mm. on your head as well. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and also that you, you seem to use natural lighting. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I sort of quite like the spontaneity of going into a space and just being able to respond to uh, whatever's there. Mm. Um but of course, I was kind of drawn to you know bedrooms and lounge rooms and and places that you know had a window, yeah. Um, where uh, yeah, it kind of I guess it's a bit more of a sort of natural in inverted commas sort of scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you see that scene, you then it conjures up other images or expectations of what you might traditionally see, and then when yeah. you don't see it, it does you know spur that quite subtle you know thought train which is well what am I looking at here Mm. what's really happening yeah 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 well thank you like for doing your amazing work it's great to see because um it's an interesting way of looking at um femininity and and gender and how women are portrayed and possibly um a new way really of looking at it yeah I mean I think there's certainly lots of artists who engage with ideas of um you know what it means to represent a woman Mm. and you know certainly since I was at art school like 10 years ago there I feel like I've seen this whole you know this really incredible wave of feminist engagement specifically with uh imaging women's Mm. bodies you know and that's so exciting for me it's been you know really wonderful enough I just saw an incredible um collection of work by an artist called Juno Calypso in London that was I mean she's kind of mind-blowing right now um but there's you know sort of lots and lots of dialogue happening around what it actually means to um photograph be photographed and photograph yourself Mm -hmm. as a woman now in our time it's exciting it is yes and Naomi from I guess an art world perspective um you know it's great that there are there's this desire and want and need for artists to be looking at issues like this as well and for spaces like CCP to highlight them I was just thinking as Claire was speaking of the other representations of women within this I like to call this a fundraising exhibition as opposed to an exhibition exhibition um, because the works have come in through the wisdom and generosity of the artists rather than having been selected. But there's this, this, you know, unintentionally a fantastic um, suite of works. For instance, there's a Wolfgang Seavers work Mm. and it's a portrait of the writer Jean Campbell in her near eastern flat 
with a portrait by Lena Bryans. Now, so it's a portrait of obviously the writer Jean Campbell and behind her is a is a crazy portrait of Jean by Lena Bryans. So that's a very, you know, uh, in when Wolfgang described this photograph to me, he, he was um, playing on her being a bit of an outsider. She, she was a writer. It's a bit risque. It's the, you know, Near Eastern flat. Mm. Um, and then there are other representations of, of women um, within that exhibition that just show different ways of engaging with issues and as beautifully and articulate as Claire spoke about her work in a way you could scratch the sur surface of every work within the show by a contemporary artist that um, reveals r really interesting responses to the world and that's what a public gallery does is mm. bring you those um, visions. Some of them are uh, encounters with the real world and some are encounters with ideas. Mm. Mm. Yes, and you mentioned there Wolfgang Sievers. I know he's had a long um, relationship with CCP yes. and is no longer with us, yes. but um, Julian Burnside mm. QC uh, donated two of his works to CCP for this uh, exhibition and fundraiser. And in particular, that one you're discussing is a really um, a well-known and um, widely held work in terms of of our, our large public galleries such as um, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the NGV. So these are uh, there's a whole range of works um, in this exhibition and I guess that really highlights the, the scales here of, um, you know, new and emerging, established um, and, you know, those artists who were working in, in the 1940s, 1950s, um, you know, who were working in modernism and there's just a real interesting cross-section of, of photography within mm. this this fundraising exhibition and, and people can access the catalogue, can't they, if they're it's interested? On, yes, and um, the works are, some of them are, um, really ridiculously inexpensive. Yes, and it is they a, are. It is an opportunity for people to purchase work. We've made an effort to, and as the artists have done, to provide the works at a very good price. Mm. And these are like some very important works in terms of within their oeuvre. It's, mm. They're often key works that they've actually you know, created that are, that would be well known to those who mm. are already in the art world, mm. but I'm sure could be appreciated by everyone. <laughs> So um, it just looking at uh, the practicalities of this um, fundraising exhibition, uh, people who are interested in buying works um, and even just coming along to support CCP in any way because there are other um, things that are being auctioned off such as tours of an artist studio, um, meeting with yourself, Naomi, about their portfolio. Um, what uh, can people do if they're interested in potentially buying uh, one of these works and supporting CCP and the artists? Well, I'm not a very good salesperson. So when you say supporting, uh, what can people do to support CCP? I think of CCP as in a productive engagement with um, people. So just come along to CCP. It's, mm. You know, it's free to come to. Um, we run fantastic programs for young people, um, people of all ages, in fact. You can call CCP uh, today and speak to Anna and purchase any of the works in the 
in the catalogue. If the work is already sold, then we would uh, approach the artist and see if they're interested in releasing a further work. The, then the relationship um, financially changes and the sale goes to the artist with a t little um, commission to CCP. Um, you can come on the night and buy a raffle ticket to be in for a, a magnificent John Golling's photograph of Bob Dylan on Melbourne Airport, which mm, is a, it's real a great gas. one. Yeah. It's really, and they're $20 tickets. The photograph is worth 500 so that's um, a good opportunity. The experiences are quite astonishing. People can bid for spending a couple of hours with John Golling's on a photo shoot. Patrick Pound is taking um, the lucky winners and three friends around his exhibition, the great exhibition at NGV. And the astonishing Patricia Piccinini is inviting people to for a tour of her studios, Drome Studios, which are, I promise you, quite miraculous. Indeed, and Patricia's work is um, quite prominent at the moment um, in terms of public awareness, isn't it? Yeah, Patricia's a, a really robust um, in someone who engages robustly with what's happening in the world. It's always reflected in her work. I'm sure mm -hmm. some people just like it because it's kind of so astonishingly well made. But she's a person who thinks deeply about the world and uh, she's always out there doing something quite extraordinary and she's very articulate and very committed and those who are lucky enough to go to her studio, she'll be giving them a glass of wine or a cup of coffee. I say, you don't need to. She says, of course, <laughs> we'd love to. Very generous people yeah artists are and it and it goes to show this really close important relationship between gallery and art world and artist because um you know both uh support each other and should be in harmony mm. absolutely and they are they seem to be very much in <laughs> harmony with this uh, fundraising exhibition so thank you claire for donating your work oh, my pleasure and to the other artists for to do donating their work and their time or experiences in that in that little um, giveaway there as well. And if people want to go to opening night, it is this Thursday evening. When does it start? Six o'clock. Six o'clock. So perfect timing. Um, and it's just the perfect weather as well to go indoors into a nice <laughs> warm gallery. Um, it's not that warm. Well, it needs to be cool <laughs> enough for the artworks, but warm enough compared to outside. It's heartwarming. Yes. yes. Even during the witching hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and also people can uh, look at the website, the CCP website as well, um, to, to check it out and to see links to The Witching Hour if you want any more information about the artists that are included in this fundraising exhibition. Thank you, um, Naomi Cass and Claire Ray, for joining us today. Thanks Thank for you. having us. It's my pleasure. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.